Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 347. Today's big Bible questions are, should we strive to be first? And how should we handle it when the Lord disappoints us? Well, hello, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. I do apologize for a bit of a nebulous title today, but I think it will make a little more sense once we finish our readings. Today's passages are Second Chronicles chapter 8, Habakkuk chapter 3, Luke 22, and the epistle of Third John. I suppose you could say that our focus will be split across all of our passages with the exception of Second Chronicles. Let's begin with our third John passage because it's the shortest. And this short letter actually contains one of my very favorite verses in the whole Bible. I, I literally have a t-shirt with this verse written on it. Third John verse four, I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in truth. Now, as a father of five and a pastor, I can relate to that on a lot of levels. Uh, It thrills my heart to see my own kids pursuing the Lord and seeking Him, and it also brings great joy to see younger people in the faith among our church family doing the same thing. Well, today we're talking about the danger of trying to be first. Maybe we could call it the danger of ambition, although I do want to be careful because the Bible doesn't use that particular word here in the Luke 22 and 3 John passage. Let's do read 3 John and listen out for John's rebuke of a person who always wants to be first. 3 John verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible The elder, to my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth, dear friend, I pray that you are prospering in every way and are in good health, just as your whole life is going well. That's a good blessing. For I was very glad when fellow believers came and testified to your fidelity to the truth, how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this to hear that my children are walking in truth. Dear friend, you are acting faithfully in whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, especially when they are strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, since they set out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from pagans. Therefore, we ought to support such people so that we can be co-workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have first place among them, does not receive our authority. This is why, if I come, I will remind him of the works he is doing, slandering us with malicious words, And he's not satisfied with that. He not only refuses to welcome fellow believers, but he even stops those who want to do so and expels them from the church. Dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Everyone speaks well of Demetrius, even the truth itself. And we also speak well of him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have many things to write to you, but I don't want to write to you with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace to you. The friends send you greetings. Greet the friends by name. So I've served in several churches over the years, and I really feel blessed to have very rarely encountered people like diatrophies, people who want to be first, who want to be held in high esteem, and who lead using bullying kind of tactics. Now, I do hear, however, from other pastors and church friends that the diatrophies spirit is alive and well in the modern church. Some pastors act that way, some deacons, some church members, some givers, etc. You see this kind of spirit, this kind of person rear its head from time to time. 
it would seem that wanting to be first is quite a dangerous thing in the kingdom of God. The word John uses here is interesting. It's the word philo proteo, and it literally means something like uh, first friend or first place friend. Something along those lines. It's it's only used one time here in the entire Bible, and it seems to carry connotations of being admired and being liked and sort of like being the alpha, calling the shots, maybe kind of like a boss or an El Jefe kind of guy. Wanting to be great is not a sin, but striving to be great and dominant in a worldly way where everybody kind of looks up to you and thinks you're the man and all that kind of stuff That is dangerous because pride is so dangerous. Indeed, in Matthew 19 and 20, Jesus teaches three times about being first, noting twice, many who are first will be last and the last first, and then concluding in verses 26 through 28, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is a good transition into our Luke passage, which is pretty long and details a lot of important events in the life of Jesus, but we're just going to narrow our focus today to one of them, along the lines of being first, being a servant, and being great. So let's read the whole chapter, and then we'll talk about that one part. Luke chapter 22, verse 1, the festival of unleavened bread, which is called Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to put Jesus to death because they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. He went away and discussed with the chief priests and temple police how he could hand him over to them. They were glad and agreed to give him silver. So he accepted the offer and started looking for a good opportunity to betray him to them, when the crowd was not present. Then the day of unleavened bread came when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked him. Listen, he said to them, When you've entered the city, a man carrying a water jug will meet you. Follow him into the house he enters. Tell the owner of the house, The teacher asks you, Where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished room upstairs. Make the preparations there. So they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes." And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me, for the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. So they began to argue among themselves which of them it could be who was going to do it. Then a dispute also arose among them about who would be considered the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have have themselves called benefactors. It is not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves." 
You are those who stood by me in my trials. I bestow on you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. He also said to them, when I sent you out without money bag, traveling bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? Not a thing, they said. Then he said to them, But now whoever has a money bag should take it, and also a traveling bag, and whoever doesn't have a sword should sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you, what is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. Yes, what is written about me is coming to its fulfillment. Lord, they said, Look, here are two swords. That is enough, he told them. He went out and made his way, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he told them, Pray that you may not fall into temptation. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and began to pray, Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. Being in anguish, he prayed more fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he got up from prayer and came to the disciples, he found them sleeping, exhausted from their grief. Why are you sleeping? he asked them. Get up and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, Suddenly a mob came, and one of the twelve named Judas was leading them. He came near Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. But Jesus responded, No more of this. And touching his ear, he healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, temple police, and the elders who had come from him, For him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. They seized him, led him away, and brought him into the high priest's house. Meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. They lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, and Peter sat among them. When a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she said, This man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, You're one of them too. Man, I am not, Peter said. About an hour later, another kept insisting, This man was certainly with him since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, Prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. When daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They said, If you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, If I do tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony? They said, Since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth. So it happened early in the passage. So let me read verses 24 through 27 again. 
a dispute arose among the disciples about who should be considered the greatest. But Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them have themselves called benefactors. But it's not to be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever is greatest among you should become like the youngest, and whoever leads like the one serving. For who is greater, the one at the table or the one serving? Isn't it the one at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus points to the tendency outside of the kingdom of God for leaders, kings, rulers, presidents, or whatever, to abuse their authority and boss people around. And he also seems to point out how people of authority want to be called nice things and thought of as good and have important titles. And then comes the warning and the teaching from Jesus. If you want to be great, you should act like the least or the youngest. And if you want to lead, you have to be a servant. You have to lead like a servant. This is the way of Jesus. He washed his disciples' feet. He loved them well, traveled with them, and didn't have a home or servants taking care of his needs. And at the end, he gave his life for them. If you want to be a great leader, the number one, the greatest, says Jesus, don't be like Diotrephes or people in the world. Don't strive for people to look up to you and praise you and call you great names. Don't try to boss people around and be the big chief. Instead, be a servant and lead by taking care of other people. The people of the world may not call you great. They may not build a statue in your honor, but you will secure eternal greatness in the kingdom of heaven. One more passage to discuss, Habakkuk 3. If you recall from yesterday, Habakkuk was asked, has asked God why evil seems to thrive and why there's so much injustice and oppression in the world. And God has told him that judgment is coming swiftly onto God's people and they will be punished, but the justified and righteous, in other words, those who love God and are pursuing him, will live by their faith and they will be vindicated in the end. In Habakkuk 3, we see the prophet's response from this message from God, and it's absolutely wonderful and genuine, almost gritty. Well, let's read it and see that response. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shigianoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. Amen. God came comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nations. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers? Or is your fury against the sea when you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot? You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence. At the flash of your flying arrows, at the brightness of your shining spear, you march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked and strip him from foot to neck. Selah. You pierce his head 
With his own spears, his warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the vast water. I heard, and I trembled within. My lips quivered at the sound. Rottenness entered my bones. I trembled where I stood. Now I must quietly wait for the day of distress to come against the people invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen, and there are no herds in the stalls, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord my Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. For the choir director on stringed instruments. Amen. So Habakkuk just nails it here. Again, some people think the Bible is just full of pie in the sky kind of uh, fluff. But those people, they haven't read the Bible. They haven't read passages like Habakkuk and other places and even the teachings of Jesus. Habakkuk knows trouble is coming on his people. He is utterly terrified and sick to the core of his being. He asks his questions. He gets his answers from God. And are they satisfying? Well, he feels rottenness in his bones. He knows that the discipline will be rough, food will be scarce, and times will be incredibly hard. And it makes him tremble and sick and be undone. And yet, ultimately, what does he do? He rejoices in the goodness of God. He celebrates. How? How can he rejoice and why does he rejoice? Well, because like we learned yesterday in Habakkuk 2, the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk knows the short term for him and his people will be miserable and hard and may possibly be the end of him and many that he loves. But he also knows and trusts that God will ultimately crush evil and take care of him and the others who have trusted in the Lord. And I suspect that Habakkuk's knowledge of heaven and eternal life here is very limited because it was Jesus who was to come much later than Habakkuk who taught much more about eternity and who actually opened the door into eternal life by his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection. But it nonetheless appears that Habakkuk trusts that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. That's a quote from Genesis 8, 18-25. And thus Habakkuk places his trust and joy firmly in God's hands by faith. And so must we, as we move through these dark and dangerous times, will we be unscathed? Probably not. And that's the thing. Habakkuk knew he wouldn't either. The judge of all the earth had come and he was going to shake the nations. And Habakkuk knew that that might not physically end well for him and his people. We won't be unscathed, but we see the hope of the gospel even more clearly than Habakkuk did, and thus let us rejoice even more mightily than he did, even when things in the short term aren't going the way we'd like, because we know in the long term, in eternity, because of Jesus and not because of our own goodness, we have much, much, much to look forward to. One more chapter to read, and it's Second Chronicles chapter 8. Verse 1, at the end of 20 years, during which Solomon had built the Lord's temple in his own palace, Solomon had rebuilt the cities Hiram gave him and settled Israelites there. Solomon went to 
Hamath Zobine seized it. He built Tadmor in the wilderness along with all the storage cities that he built in Hamath. He built Upper Beth Haran and Lower Beth Haran, fortified cities with walls, gates, and bars. Baalath, all the storage cities that belonged to Solomon, all the chariot cities, the cavalry cities, and everything Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, Lebanon, or anywhere else in the land of his dominion. As for all the peoples who remained of the Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, who were not from Israel, their descendants who remained in the land after them, those the Israelites had not completely destroyed, Solomon imposed forced labor on them, and is this way today. But Solomon did not consign the Israelites to be slaves for his work. They were soldiers, commanders of his captains, and commanders of his chariots and his cavalry. These were King Solomon's deputies, 250, who supervised the people. Solomon brought the daughter of Pharaoh from the city of the David to the house he had built for her. For he said, My wife must not live in the house of King David of Israel, because the places of the ark of the Lord has come into are holy. At that time, Solomon offered burnt offerings to the Lord on the Lord's altar he had made in front of the portico. He followed the daily requirements for offerings according to the commandment of Moses for Sabbaths, new moons, and the three annual appointed festivals, the Festival of Unleavened Bread, the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Shelters. According to the ordinances of his father David, he appointed the divisions, the priests over their service of the Levites over their responsibilities to offer praise and to minister before the priests following the daily requirement and of the gatekeepers by their divisions with respect to each temple gate, for this had been the command of David, the man of God. They did not turn aside from the king's command regarding the priests and the Levites concerning any manner or concerning the treasuries. All of Solomon's work was carried out from the day the foundation was laid for the Lord's temple until it was finished, so the Lord's temple was completed." At that time, Solomon went to Etzion, Geber, and to Eloth on the seashore in the land of Edom. So Hiram sent ships to him by his servants along with crews of experienced seamen. They went with Solomon's servants to Ophir, took from there 17 tons of gold, and delivered it to King Solomon. Well, dear friends, may the word of God build you up and may he strengthen you and bless you, and carry you, and keep you. Good day to you, and Godspeed.